From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Colin Donovan is in the house. Pick up the phone and give us a call. Those lines will be jam-packed later on. This is your opportunity at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we will uh, put you even straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. Two nine eight five, and um, you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com, and uh, we might get your email on the air via that mechanism. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky, and um, Michael McCall also doubling up today uh, as your social media maven. Um, our host, as he is every Friday, and I should mention that Michael McCall will be scouring our YouTube channel and Facebook page, so if you have a question, you can type it into the chat window there. Um, our host, the aforementioned Vice President of Theology for EWTN, Mr. Colin Donovan, how are you? Pretty good. Ready to go to war or battle or whichever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another debate I'm having right now, the word battle. So, <laughs> These I'm, are all off-air I'm, conversations. I'm shrouded and it's in controversy somehow. as we speak. So, Scott writes in, I recently attended a new parish. At the end of the Mass, before the priest says the Mass has ended, and before the final blessing, they start saying the Anima Christi. I was always under the impression that nothing extra can be added to the Mass. It's okay to say prayers after the Mass, once he says the Mass has ended, but is it legitimate, is it against the rules, to throw a prayer in before the end of Mass? Uh, I know it's a prayer, no doubt, but it just doesn't seem right to to Scott. Yeah, um, I've seen it done, but actually quite rarely. Uh, sometimes a priest will lead the people during the time of Thanksgiving, which is meant to be meditative after communion. Uh, sometimes even things are done there, such as uh, making consecration to the Sacred Heart or something of this nature. Uh, not necessarily the base, be, best place for it, uh, but as long as it's in, in a time of prayer, I can see why it might be inserted there. I don't see it very often, which should tell you something, and that is, as, as, a, as a normal rule, the rubrics do not permit insertions or deletions, and where there are options of what can be done, uh, that's usually also mentioned as well. So I guess the option here might be somebody's sense that this is a time after communion, it's a time of prayerful meditation. Uh, Let's give a witness of what would be a wonderful prayer uh, after at, to make during the communion time. Uh, that may be the thinking that's going on there. 
So it's definitely a borderline point, um, and I can see both sides of that. 833-288-EWTN, still one open line at 833-288-3986. Tommy wants to know, should Catholics be in support of criminalizing pornography? I th- Just on the general point of not a pornography, but of what, need, what should and should not be uh, made into a law. Some things... Uh, obviously are so egregiously wrong that the state ought to make a law against it and punish it. Uh, Even St. Thomas Aquinas argued that you could, in the case of, say, prostitution, something where clearly that is a wrong uh, wrong behavior morally, there can be reasons that it might be tolerated because of greater things that would fall. So in political in political judgments as to what should or should not be a law, there are going to be questions of would we have, for instance, do you have to intrude into private homes? Do you have to, you know, if you say that adultery is more uh, legally wrong, does that mean you go around questioning everybody whether they're married to this person? You know, so some deci- some laws can be very intrusive in the in the in the society, and in the end, do more harm than the good that they're seeking to do. And the point would be that balance of judgment of what things that are wrong ought to be criminalized is going to be up to the political authority. Uh, not everything that is morally wrong has to be also civilly wrong, and for no other reason is. Whatever that civil judge may do or know or not know about your behavior, the other judge, and I'm finger pointing up right now, he knows, and nobody will escape justice or punishment. So political leaders, state leaders of the state, have to make judgments as to what serves the common good and the balance there of of something, especially in the sexual domain. This is the very example that uh, Aquinas came up with. And I think that would be the case of pornography. I think the way the government used to do it, where it, you could not have it on any public cable, and this, was, this is where it ought to be, because children see it and, all, and so on. Uh, this, this is a barrier that we've now crossed for many decades now, thanks to our Supreme Court, uh, in defining it, and people who pushed further and further the envelope on on uh, public availability of pornography, um, how you how you roll that clock back to sanity, uh, I'm not sure that it can. Even though I sure think it ought to be. You know, and I think it needs to be mentioned here, um, just with regard to this specifically, what is mentioned in this question. Anybody within the sound of my voice that thinks for any reason whatsoever that any form of pornography can be justified, you need to adjust your thinking because that is just bad thinking, period, all the way around. It's not good for you. It's not good for the objects that you are viewing. It's not good for anybody. It's an abomination to God. And if you're living under any illusion whatsoever that there is harmlessness in pornography, you are in error. Right, which is somewhat off topic, but in the same in the same reason, it's a, certainly a case of something which is generally harmful to everybody, single men and women, married men and women, and and children in particular, 
in their exploitation as well as in the harm done to the individual who uses it. Whether the state and how the state should regulate, or regulate it is something that there has to be some, you know, consideration of how far do we go in regulating it? How far do we intrude in people's lives in order to do that? I think you catch the makers of pornographers, you publish them, punish them, uh, and like many things, that's that's the best way to control uh, abuses. But none of that has anything to do with do with the moral culture. character of it, right. which is 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 universally wrong because it makes of another person something erotic for me. It's very egotistical. I'm going to put you up against the wall here in a couple minutes. We've got left uh, before we uh, hear some messages here. Pete wants to know what are some ways that I can defend apostolic succession. I think uh, start with common sense. If there is no apostolic succession, where do you know where the church is? Where the church is? This was the argument used by Saint Irenaeus in the second century when people there was a proliferation of claims to have the truth, the true gospel. And Irenaeus's response in his book Against Heresies was, you look where the bishops succeed in their sees from the apostles who were first there or established those churches. That's how you know where Christ's church is. And if your leader is not one of those who have that succession from the apostles, apostolic succession we call it, then that is not where the gospel truth given to the apostles and taught by them and their successors is held. Go, some, go find that and leave your, uh, your heresy behind. And that's what uh, was true in the second century and is true in the 21st as well. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833 3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1 205 271 2985. And uh, we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Mike in Texas, Diane in Colorado, Todd in Nebraska, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, I don't know where you are, but here in Birmingham, Alabama... We don't get a ton of winter normally. The last two years, we've had temperatures in the teens, Mm -hmm. but we've had a dry. We're luckily getting some rain here now, but we've got some dry weather, and dry weather makes for dry skin, 
and it really creates a problem, especially for those of us that have uh, reached a certain a certain age threshold, and maybe our skin is not as naturally moist as it once was. Well, I've got a great item for you at EWTN's religious catalog of all places. It's all natural, handcrafted lotion by the Franciscan Peacemakers Ministry. Uh, they're a little eight ounce. Uh, they come with a little pump. Uh, very nice. You enjoy yours to give to friends. Uh, the Franciscan Peach Maker. Uh, well, I've just I've said all that. But these lotions are rich. They're moisturizing yet light and non-greasy. Very important. And they come in the into. I don't know. Like I don't know if I like this adjective. The intoxicating sense of lavender, <laughs> sacred amber, lemon verbena, or honey oatmeal. Uh, each eight-ounce bottle includes a pump, as I mentioned. You can keep it uh, near your sink or wherever you might find the need for it. Uh, they're founded by Capuchin Friars in 1995. The Franciscan Peacemakers Social Enterprise connects women survivors of exploitation to safe housing, meaningful work, and healing, and a healing network of support. So take care of your body while helping to take care of the bodies of others. Uh, great opportunity for you. We're offering free standard shipping at EWTNRC right now on orders online of $75 or more. That is standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. First up is Mike in the Republic of Texas listening on Armor of God Radio. Mike, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hey, uh, so I got a question that's been bugging me for a couple of years, and hopefully you can help me figure this one out. Um, when I look in my missile, you know, different different weeks in ordinary time fall before or after Easter. Sometimes mm-hmm. the sixth, right before Lent starts, and sometimes you know, we get to the eighth before Lent starts, or, or even later. But one thing I've noticed in the calendar of my missile is that there is never a year that we have a Ninth Ordinary Sunday. Now, that said, I still have reading for the Ninth Ordinary Sunday, but there's yep. no week, no year that that ever occurs. So what the heck is up? I mean, like, you know, like with this year, we didn't have a first, right? But that was a, a schedule issue and things like that. But, I mean, sometimes those weeks occur before Easter, sometimes after. We still mm-hmm. never have a Ninth. Sure. Where the heck is the Ninth Ordinary Sunday? Well, I guess it's out there from mind, uh, time to time. Uh <laughs> I, I think uh, you sort of mentioned the reason there. I think scheduling uh, between the divine scheduling of the calendar, solar and lunar calendar, and the human scheduling of the liturgy, you know, based on the first Sunday of Advent and uh, and so on. It's probably is the case that the ninth Sunday is as often in jeopardy as it ever gets celebrated because it's you know right in that period where you're you're looking for when Lent starts, so or when it's finished, and in one way or another, it's in the it's in the in the missile, but it all depends upon when East when. Uh, uh, when Ash Wednesday is in a particular year and where an Easter is and where that falls. And it also has to be because the ordinary time must conclude with the last Sunday, the 34th Sunday, being Christ the King and the following Sunday being in being uh, uh, being the first Sunday of Advent. So it really is a scheduling program and uh, problem. And uh I don't know. I'd I'd have to look back over the years to see how many times the ninth was skipped for that reason. Uh, 
I think Jack's doing some. They have, uh, they have readings for it. That's all I can tell you. Right. That that's easy enough to find. I've never been in a missile, or whether it's the ultra missile or hand missile, that didn't have all the Sundays uh, of ordinary time. But I think it really is that the the way that Easter is calculated and when that determines Ash Wednesday begins, other feast days, there are other things that can push out the ninth as well. Uh, that would normally be, well, let's see, that, could, that would normally be in the spring. It might be um, if a solemnity falls of the Lord on that day, it would push it out. <coughs> Not sure if um, March 25th ever pushes that out. So there are a lot of liturgical scheduling reasons why that may be the most imperiled Sunday in ordinary time. Thanks, Mike. I know what I'll be doing tonight. I'll be going through all of my missiles and see if I can find a ninth Sunday in ordinary time. <laughs> 833-288. It'll find us eventually. Yeah, ETWTN's our toll-free number. Uh, next up is Diane, a first-time caller in Denver, Colorado, listening on the Catholic Radio Network. Diane, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, my question is, as I pray the Sorrowful Mysteries and I do the Stations of the Cross, it's always such a hard meditation, and my mind always goes, to why did he have to die and die so harshly? And I understand that he's redeeming our sins, that he redeemed our sins. He's the ultimate sacrifice, so we don't have to sacrifice anymore in, in that regard. Um, as they did in the Old Testament sacrifices to God, but why did he have to die and die that way? Um, well, I think that way, the manner, was historically determined. Uh, of course, we know, Scripture says, in the fullness of time, uh, he came into the world. The reason is, it's a, a lot of theologies, especially some Protestant theologies, put a, a lot of value on this idea of sacrifice. And it is important in the church as well. So one thing Fulton Sheen always used to say is sin is in the blood. It has to be expert, removed, extirpated by, uh, by sacrifice. And so there's that reason. But I think there is a reason why that is why it is so. And the reason is not that sacrifice in that way is necessary, but sometimes the love which is a characteristic of God, requires sacrifice. And that is at work here. The communion of the Trinity is a communion of love. The communion of God with man should be in a communion, should be a communion of, of love. When we sin, we can easily make it into a legal thing. Well, here's a law, I broke it. There, God's punishing me. No. Here's a place where I should have loved God and he told me I shouldn't be doing this, but I shouldn't be doing it because it's good for me. I should love myself. I should love my neighbor. And if I loved God, loved myself, and loved my neighbor as I'm supposed to do, I wouldn't have done this thing, this sin. So the law tells us the boundary that is crossed, but the thing that is really broken is the love that we ought to have for God, ourselves, and for others. And so what happens, what does love often do? It goes to the last measure, and our Lord talks about that. We reward the soldier who, sailor or airman or marine, I've got to get all the services in here for the uh, sake of peace in Space the military Force. family. Space Force. Oh, I, I forgot Space Force. Yeah. Um, only when Klingons invade, then they can sacrifice <laughs> themselves. So 
we honor the sacrifice of our armed service personnel when they charge into battle or throw themselves on a grenade or do something which protects their brothers and sisters in the, in the service or and thereby our country. In other words, their sacrifice requires for them love, and that love causes something to be taken away, their life, but it's for the sake of others. So Jesus did that to the nth degree <coughs> because he came and gave his life, his love, for the last measure of his blood, and as the shroud shows us, for the last measure of the dignity of his body, his flesh as well. And so that is a sign for us of what we are called to do. And we are not going to live up to that in most cases. The martyrs do uh, very often. But the emphasis there is not that a law has been broken that needs to be repaired by sacrifice, but that love has been offended that can only be repaired by love, even when it involves the greatest sacrifice possible. And that's what our Lord did for us. So think of it that way. I think it'll give new meaning uh, to considerations of the role of sacrifice in, in the faith. Thanks, Diane. We appreciate the phone call. Next up is April, another first-time caller in Hershey, Pennsylvania, listening on Holy Family Radio. April, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi. My question is this. Uh, <coughs> the deacon the other day on Deacon Beacon of Hope was talking about the purpose of indulgences mm-hmm. and the meaning of indulgences. And my question is this. Who or what ultimately determines a person's uh, from purgatory. Uh, it, is it God? Is it is it the indulgences? Um, he was he mentioned about how indulgences can help to determine the time. Now, I have, I am a Protestant. I grew up in the United Methodist Church. Part of some of my family is Catholic, um, and I've I've long time listener to. Uh, Holy Family Radio. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted clarification sure. on that. That yeah. is an awesome question. It is, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it's not that any human calculation can even determine that. Because what the Church teaches when you perform a work which the Church has indulgence through its the power of the keys, the apostolic authority that, that uh, Christ gave to Peter, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, what you loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven, and so the church, in using that exercise of its of the power of the keys, says that Christ, from the treasury of his merits and suffering, which has, of course, as I just explained, you know, settled this breach between God and man, can help us then, and he, and he desires the application of those merits to the particular breaches of every individual, our sinfulness the weight of our sinfulness which clouds our judgment so that we sin again and again and again. So indulgences are meant to, to take away the, the, the obligation of, of a suffering which would be greater if we didn't try to repair our own weaknesses in this life. So the church always has... Uh, said we should pray. That's a, a universal obligation of every, of every believer, to pray. We cannot be saved without prayer. 
We cannot be saved without penance. Our Lord said, unless you take up the cross, unless you make this voluntary taking up of the cross, is another way of saying, unless you accept the penitential weight of the duties of your state in life or the work that you do or the sufferings that you have, are called to endure or those which you undertake freely by, say, fasting or penitence or, or doing a work that is indulgence by the church. Unless you take up your cross, you cannot be saved because nobody, unless they are building up their own spiritual resources, will ever survive this world if they're not keeping those uh, that bank steady at least and even increasing it into the future and i think we'll take this up again at after the break 833-288-EWTN it's open line friday with colin donovan this is open line on the ewtn global catholic radio network 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. We're talking to April in Hershey, Pennsylvania, who Colin had the very practical rubber-meets-the-road question of who is it that makes the the determination of the duration of anyone's stay in purgatory? Right. So like most things in our our Christian faith— well, we are the ones who determine how God's grace will affect us because we can pose, impose our will between his will and his desire to, to elevate us in the spiritual life um, and, and say no to that. So the purpose of indulgences, the purpose of our prayer life, our penitential life, our life of holiness, our life of charitable works or good works as they're sometimes called, uh, done out of love for others. All of this is ordered to bring us closer to God, to break down those things which keep us from God. And so the first condition for the, for the benefit of an of a indulgence, especially one which uh, the church suggests could relieve all of the, uh, of the time in purgatory, is that we be detached from all attachment to venial sin. In other words, those things in this world which are keep us from God. So that's a very hard thing to do. The purpose of purgatory is that we be detached from all that keeps us from God. We may be in the state of grace or the state of justice, as uh, uh, non-Catholics would speak of it, righteousness or justice, which is, we use those terms as well. We may be in that state, but that doesn't mean that we are pure, And our Lord says, be perfect as the Father is perfect. And St. John tells us, nothing impure enters into the heavenly Jerusalem. So purgatory is that place where the imperfections of our will, directed as it is towards God at death, because the other place is where the other people go, directed towards God, but imperfectly, with maybe some attachments, That's what purgatory is about. And the only one who can make that judgment is God. And the contributions that we make on earth is to to dispose ourselves for that full detachment. The constitution that others can do by praying for us, by having mass offered for us and saying the rosary for us, those kinds of things, is to appeal to God, who in the end is the only one who can make that determination and and complete our purification. So the answer to your question is God. It has to be that. 
but it involves our own participation to the degree that we surrender our will to him in this matter as we're called to do in all matters, and that will determine what benefit we get from our prayers, from our penitences, and from our uh, indulgenced works. Does that help, April? Yes, that helps so much. Thank you so much for your clarification on that. Now, I I have a question for you, April. Have you yes. have you been to the chocolate spa in Hershey? No, I have not. Yeah, it was just no, a, my wife and I there. were in, in an airport recently, and there were a group of biological sisters that were going on a sisters' outing to the <laughs> chocolate spa in Hershey, and I didn't realize there was a chocolate spa in Hershey. I'm so. not telling my wife that story. She'll <laughs> look for a group of people who want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Next up is Robin in the great state of Illinois, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Robin, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. How are you today? Very good. What's your question today, Robin? It has recently come to my attention that um, uh, Vatican II said nothing about taking the Eucharist in the hand, and that the United States got a indult, I-N-D-U-L-T, I mm-hmm. think is the word, yeah. to, um, like, I, I guess that's like a, what would you call that? A- an exception um, to the norm. Yes, an exception, yes. And I've also recently heard, that being said, that um, according to, and I can't remember, I think the author's name was, Simmi, S-I-M-M-I, uh, she, it, she claims to be in, in contact with the poor souls in purgatory, and that she said that the Blessed Mother told her that um, it greatly offends her son, Jesus Christ, that we take the host in the hand. What do you what do you have thoughts on that or, or sure Thou art Peter and upon this rock I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it I give to you the keys of the kingdom whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven and he repeats that with the rest of the apostles in the that's Matthew 16 Matthew 18 This means that Setting aside questions of the prudence of it, and that's certainly a legitimate question, no Catholic will be offending the Lord who with the devotion that is required to receive our Lord well, receives communion by mouth or by hand, by kneeling or standing. All of those things are determined by the authority of the church. And we can rely upon that authority as nothing else, as our attorney, that we are following what the church, whom Christ gave the authority to do. Ipso facto, in Catholic theological thinking, a person who claims to have messages from God, who sets themselves up to judge the church, is ipso facto false. Because God does not do that, the Blessed Mother doesn't do that, the saints do not do that. The times in history, such as Catherine of Siena, when the Pope wanted to move, uh, you know, move the Vatican for its safety, and other such occasions, usually the mystics who are legitimate 
do what is called for in Scripture. They give fraternal correction personally to the Pope, or at least directly to the Pope. They don't do it by broadcasting it or spreading it around on broadsheets or writing private revelations and spreading it around. That is, is another, on the moral side of the question, that is also evidence of the ludicrousness of such a claim. The devil is very happy to have people believe that there are, they are very special, they're very devout, and they're devoter than the next person who may be receiving in the hand. I myself always receive on the tongue because that's my own, my, my own upbringing. During COVID, I received on the hand because that was asked of me by the church. And nobody should be ashamed of doing what the church asks them to do or says they may do, considering if that authority is legitimately uh, directed to, to them. So that's, that's my answer to that. As for the, the practice in itself, there is nothing theologically wrong with receiving communion in the hand. What is required of you, and Pope Paul VI had this published in the early part of the 1970s when these, these indults were given to various nations because the bishops' conference asked for them. He said through his Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith that the care must be had because every single particle, just as the priest purifies the paten and purifies the, the chalice, because all everything that is visibly the sensible sign, bread or wine, that's Christ. So when you receive in the hand, you ought to first look in your hand and look to see if there are any visible particles and consume those. So offended by people who just dust off their hands? Yes, I'm offended by that when I see it. But receiving in the hand in keeping with the law of the church and taking the care that the Pope himself through the congregation asked us to give back in the 1970s and which is theologically sound advice. The priest must follow it in cleaning the vessels. We must follow it when receiving in the hand. The Eucharist minister should follow it in dispensing the Holy Eucharist. The other part of this is the church's authority determines who gets to distribute communion. In the early church, they used acolytes. And so St. Tarsisius was an acolyte who was put to death because he was guarding the Holy Eucharist. If it were in principle wrong for the laity to touch the host, it would be in principle wrong for it to have been given to Tarsisius to take to the poor. It would have been in principle wrong for him to have touched it. And that is patently ridiculous. The church is consistent, and it's on her authority that she decides whom she gives the, the permission to do certain things, such as distribute communion or take it to the sick, has been done in generations past in the, in the early church. And so, again, all of this just to show that such revelations are theological nonsense, and anybody who would be paying it should not be paying attention to them if for no other reason that the authority given to the church in the sacred scripture is absolutely clear. That's public revelation. Private revelation is only, has only weight if the church has demonstrably taught that this is credible because only the church can discern. 
So the church discerns what is credible private revelation, and even then, it's only advisory. It's not public revelation, and it's not the authority of the church. So um, there are so many grounds that that's just rubbish that uh, I guess I think have exhausted them for this afternoon at least. You know, and as your your colleague on Wednesday, Father Wade, or Tuesday, excuse me, Father Wade often points Same out, question. yeah, you can you can uh, you can receive very reverently on the hand, and you can receive very irreverently on the hand, and the That's same right. is the, the the case for on the tongue. You can receive very reverently on the tongue, and he said he's had people snatch the Eucharist out of his hand like an alligator, uh, yeah. receiving on the tongue. So it, yeah. it, it's really your your disposition and the reverence that you show. The lack of dignity is not yeah. in the body per se, but in the but in the person who. Uh, has control of that body and uses it in an undignified fashion or treats the Lord in an undignified and irreverent fashion. Yeah, very good. Thanks, Robin. We appreciate the question. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Kathleen is in Omaha, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Kathleen, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi. Hello Hello. Hi, my question is, uh, I was listening to David Anders the other day, mm-hmm. and my understanding, I may be totally erroneous here, I probably am, but my, I, got, I thought that, that it was stated somewhere that the Council of Trent uh, ruled that it was impossible to know that you were in the state of grace, and it was an anathema if you considered yourself to be in the state of grace. And I guess that troubled me because I thought, how in the world then can anybody uh, <laughs> rightfully go to communion, uh, you know, receive sure, communion yeah. if you... Yeah, that's my well, question. Yeah, and that's almost... That goes along with the question we just had. Unless you have a private revelation from God, which you have good grounds for believing he's, you're, he's the truth, that you are in the state of grace, it's certainly true that short of that, you cannot know. But the practical signs of your see is you're you're seeking holiness. When your conscience tells you you've committed a mortal sin and you go to confession and the priest absolves you, you do not know in the same way you know that you know the tables of multiplication or a math solve a math problem. But you know with all the practical certainty which ninety nine point nine percent of us in this world ever have about anything, and that is. I've done my due diligence. I've taken my sins as I know them. I've been absolved by Christ through his church. On the basis of this, I present myself for communion, for example. And that's what, that's what we all do as Catholics. We, uh, now, if we know we, we are not in the state of grace because we know the point is less, am I in the state of grace, but am I not in the state of grace because my conscience tells me I knowingly and willfully violated the commandments in a grave matter. In that case, you know you're not in a state of grace and you can't receive communion. But if you're doing the due diligence that the average Catholic does of seeking God and going to communion when your conscience tells you you've committed mortal, or going to confession when your conscience tells you, then, then that's all that is expected of you. And that doesn't contradict in any way the statement of the Council of Trent that short of a uh, of a revelation, you can't know in this sort of the scientific 
empirical sense that you're in the state of grace. But you have every good uh, good des- uh, sign of that. And there's another way that this show is shown to work out, and that is when a very holy person, a, a Mother Teresa or a John Paul II or, or whomever it is, some, anyone that's been canonized, the church doesn't have a little meter that tells, well, he in, was in the state of grace and he, he lived his life well and perfectly. They do an exhaustive study. In other words, they take documentation and they make a judgment. Did this person live a life of heroic virtue? That would be the indication in the state of grace. If they lived a life of heroic virtue, it also suggests they had the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit in plenitude. And that means that they would be certainly in the state of grace. So the human judgment uh, is made that this person not only lived in the state of grace, died in the state of grace, and did so heroically. That is done after an exhaustive study. That's sort of an exception to the fact that even then the church doesn't say, oh, this is dim- proven. What the church does at this point is pray. So if the pope were to declare that person to have heroic virtue, that's credible. Later on, if he were to declare the person to be a saint, that's generally considered an exercise of infallibility, that that would not be done unless they were. And there they have the help of God, essentially not a revelation, but that God accompanying the church in the normal operation of, of, of these kinds of matters confirms that this person is in heaven. That would be not an exception to what the Council of Trent said, but that the ordinary process of the church throughout history have been able charismatically, by the grace of God working through the church, determine when somebody is in heaven, although there would still be no way other than the practical way in life of saying, Yes, this is a good person. This is a holy person. Uh, but people thought to be holy have sometimes turned out to be more devil than holy because we can put on a good act, and that's why the church has a process that carefully weighs their life in detail before making even that judgment of heroic virtue. How, who, who was it that had the famous female saint that had the quote that uh, answered this very question and said if... Uh, what? I'm sorry? Oh, Joan of Arc, apparently. Yeah. Joan of Arc said, if, I, if I'm if i not in a state of grace, may God lead me there. If I am, may he keep me there. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We head next to the Republic of Texas. Karen is in Houston listening on Guadalupe Radio. Karen, you're on with Colin Donovan. Good afternoon. My question concerns cremation and the... Um, internment or lack of internment Mm -hmm. and how ashes are handled. A friend had a relative ashes placed in a columbarium. Then Mm -hmm. she told me later that other than the majority of the ashes being placed in a Catholic church columbarium, that small bags of ashes had been taken home for a family to dispense. Uh, yeah, um, that's the latter part of that. The first part of that's okay. The church allows cremation, uh, provided that there is no effort on the part or nor, no, there was no will on the part of the deceased to offend against the doctrine of the resurrection, which is why cremation was, um, uh, was forbidden. So it, it's, that's allowed. The taking home of little bags is not allowed, however. 
there is in a new document that came out a couple months ago a possibility that I believe it takes the permission of the bishop. With the permission of the bishop, a family may keep a small amount of it, but it would be have to be kept not in a Ziploc, but in some reverent way. And if you've ever seen a reliquary holding a little bit of whether it's cloth or bone or flesh or something of a, of a saint, you see the care and the respectful way that it's, it, it's packaged and, and, and reverenced by the church. So I think by analogy to how the church handles the bodies of the saints, the church in this new permission is allowing the, the family to have, say, some of the uh, cremated remains to be cared for in such a fashion, respectfully. Uh, little bags just doesn't cut it, in my opinion. So I hope that, uh, does that fit your situation? Yes, I guess it follows uh, years of me hearing about the ashes being spread in oceans, in mm-hmm. memory gardens, etc. Right, and that those were all abuses, and I think there has been a, I don't know to what extent, but there has been an interest uh, in being able to keep something of, but I, I think it has to be done in a way that's reverent and in accordance whatever norms the bishop of the diocese uh, establishes for that and how he instructs his, his priests. It shouldn't be a determination made solely by the individuals, uh, I, do, I do not believe. You know, there's a lot of inspiring young people running around in the Catholic world these days. One of them is Samantha Kelly. Uh, Samantha was a soccer player at the University of Connecticut and uh, battled a lot of adversity during her college career from injuries and other uh, situations. And in uh, her post-college days has formed this uh, organization called Fierce Athlete, where she talks and deals with uh, the sorts of uh, issues that female athletes face uh, today, especially at a high, the highest levels. And we have a podcast that Samantha does every week called the Fierce Athlete Podcast, and it features female athletes being raw and real about the joys and struggles of life both on and off the field and how faith can both heal our wounds and reveal true beauty. You can hear Fierce Athlete as well as other faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates around the world all in one place. It's all free at EWTN's Podcast Central. Visit EWTN.com slash radio and click on podcast central 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number pierre is in new orleans louisiana listening on catholic community media pierre you're on with colin donovan yes thanks uh, for taking my call you're welcome. a friend of mine uh, asked me the other day and i'd like to get uh, y'all's opinion on this if god's love is unconditional and he seeks us in the parable of the prodigal son, always waiting uh, for repentance from the sinner. Uh, and somewhere, too, in the Bible, he mentions something about God condemning to hell and yet can bring up from hell uh, a person that he condemns. Why is it that God would cease to seek a sinner, a sinner's repentance beyond the grave after death, in other words? So, like your opinion on that, please. Well, I, 
I know of no place in Scripture which suggests that there is redemption for hell. In fact, in the one place where Jesus talks very often about the sheep and the goats, several places in the Gospel of Matthew, for example, he describes the end of the world and the division between the just and the unjust, the good and the evil, the sheep and the goats, and so on. And clearly, uh, in the other places, he talks about the eternal suffering, the never-ending suffering of those who will go to where the devil's, you know, created a place created for the devil. In other words, hell. So there is nothing in Scripture to suggest that anyone gets out of hell with they 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 get there. Our chance is in life. In life, we are fully human, are we not? We are not. Uh, we speak of when the church speaks of the soul after death. Uh, Thomas Aquinas and other philosophers and theologians use the separated soul because human beings, unlike the angels, are constituted body and soul. And human beings in eternal life after the general resurrection will be, as Christ and Our Lady already are, body and soul. So when we die, our ability to change changes. The angels are forever fixed in their uh, direction for or against God because they are spiritual, and their first moral act was for or against God. They have nothing in them that can change. We have in us, because of our, our, uh, our, our bodies, we have a principle of change that allows us to change course, even radically. We can, we can gear ourselves up to do evil and then have some crisis in our life of sickness or suffering or whatever it might be, and we shape up and we turn our life around. We do that because we are not unidirectional. We're not only spirit, but we have a principle of change in us, and that is our emotions. And our, and our, and our lives are spent often trying to overcome them. And when we do overcome them, we're on our true course to God. At death, that possibility ends. And that is why, like the angels who never had a second chance, they chose for against God by their first moral act, our last moral act is at the end of our life. That determines our state of life afterwards. That determines, uh, as the parable in Luke of the rich man and Lazarus shows, that determines whether we go to the bosom of Abraham or whether we go to the other place with flames. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, also Mr. Michael McCall. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it Monday with Father John Tregilio. Until we get together then, God bless. God bless.